This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. Check, check, one, two. All right, party people. Welcome to another episode of Stark Reality with uh, me, myself, and I, Small Change, a.k.a. James Deere. And my guest this time around is Ricardo Vaz, going out all the way to Venezuela, Caracas to be exact. He is a writer and editor for the media outlet Venezuelan Analysis. And he's also part of the uh, collectives Tattoo TV and Utopics. He grew up in Mozambique, actually, and studied theoretical physics in Portugal and the U.S. But his communist ideals basically saw him move to Venezuela in 2019. Venezuelan analysis is a key source of info on Venezuela in English and Spanish, of course. Check them out. They're great. We talk about various U.S. fuckery in Venezuela, 2002 coup, that kind of helped sort of start Venezuelan analysis in a way. The clown Juan Guaido, <clears throat> Jack Ryan, of course, media coverage, Western propaganda, the arrest of Alex Saab, U.S. sanctions, elections in Venezuela, the coup in Bolivia in 2019, Cuba, uh, expats, and traditional Latin American folk and protest music, which is kind of the accompanying playlist that he put together. Anyways, a mouthful, but uh, an enjoyable conversation. Really nice guy. So check it out on Stark Reality. Hey Francisco Valentín, pinta melodía. Y liqui liqui. Sí mismo, Frankie, así es que me gusta. Óyeme, Francisco. I can see you have a lot of boxes there. Is that the move still? Uh, no, that's actually my uh, 45 boxes, you know. Okay. Records, you know how it is. Oh. Old school. <laughs> <laughs> so so where are you based i'm based in brooklyn in new york um originally from california but i've been living in new york since uh 93 though we're trying to move right now so that's why it's been hectic the market is like so fugly right now there was some article yeah. of like people like literally in a bidding war on a rental property so i don't know maybe that's the future it's not even like bidding to own a house bidding to give someone rent. <laughs> Bidding to have a roof. Yeah, which is, I'm sure that's what, you know, y'all are dealing with in Venezuela, right? That's uh, that's what Maduro's all about. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bull. <laughs> you know, you yeah, guys actually, are bidding, I, bidding, I mean, well, you guys actually have been, like, building all this housing. I don't know. I always feel like uh, the U.S. could be taking notes, uh, but they're too busy demonizing, you know? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'm sure to to work that in at some point during our during our chat. Yeah, no, you know, but... I actually I actually lived in in the state of New York for a while in Long Island. Oh, in Long Island, nice. 
Yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago. I was there for grad school in Stony Brook. Nice. What did you study? I studied physics, theoretical physics. And that's, and, and, I, and that's what you're that doing now. <laughs> mental, <laughs> mental physics. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's kind I of me media that. analysis. It's sort of like upside down. Up is down, down is up. So it is, it's sort of yeah, an inverted I, physics, I guess. <laughs> you know what? But, but I, tried, I tried to argue or convince myself that, you know, having studied physics, you, you grow this very systematic way of thinking, which is what allows you to kind of take apart the, the media coverage. Yeah, it is kind just, of like... Just to convince myself that it wasn't a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> but you're originally from Venezuela then. No, I'm from Mozambique in Southern Africa, but I'm a Portuguese national and I traveled a bit, but you know, in the back of my mind, at least for, I don't know, the last 20 years, Venezuela seemed like an inevit inevitable de destination. Sooner or later I would have here, you know, it, it's uh, rational and irrational at the same time, but you know, home is where the heart is. I've been here for now and more than three years or just over three years and I don't I, I have no plans of going anywhere else nice nice and um, how did you get involved with uh, Venezuelan analysis because it's been around for a while right yeah actually it's a, it's a, it's an awesome project and Venezuelan analysis just to give a bit of context it was born in 2003 so people who have been follow, following Venezuela even if just on the margins they'll they'll know that there was a coup in 2002 and the media actually played a huge role in, in that coup in spreading this information and then trying to pretend that the coup was not being fought and, and reversed by, by the people here on the ground in, in Caracas. And in that context, there was a group of people, among them Gregory Wilpert, who's, who's still uh, with Venezuela analysis, although not directly involved in the day-to-day running of the operation, he and the others realized that there was a glaring need for an English source that would counter this propaganda. So that was the original mission of, of Venezuela analysis. And because this propaganda has has not ceased to exist and has only grown worse, we, uh, we also have no plans of, of going anywhere. So for me, for me personally, uh, it was the fact that I didn't speak uh, fluently, I didn't speak Spanish fluently until, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. So I needed an English source and Venezuela analysis has been uh, impeccable for for a long time, not just in terms of, you know, giving a voice to the Bolivarian grassroots, which is very important for us because that's what allows us to understand what is revolutionary about the Bolivarian revolution, but also in terms of having kind of high standard journalism, not just uh, thinly disguised propaganda, which is what you get from the corporate media whenever it, it concerns a country that's being attacked by the United States. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy. It really is. The propaganda is kind of nonstop. And uh, I'm sort of, you know, one of these days I've wanted to learn Spanish for 20 years. Maybe one of these days I'll get around to it. But that's why, you know, Venezuelan analysis, again, has been kind of a key source for, you know, because you want to, you know, there's there's anti-imperialist, you know, news media all over the world. But it is good to have people that are just there on the ground locally so that you can actually just dispute all the bs that gets spewed to us in corporate western media you know yeah actually that could be a nice uh, advertising for us you know 18 years stopping people from learning spanish <laughs> 
I don't know. I'm not good with languages, but I do need to learn it. You know what I mean? I have enough salsa records. I probably should learn what they're talking about. But, well, uh, that, that's that's a good that's a good place to start. Actually, my kind of background in in, in learning Spanish was uh, Latin American music. You know, not not salsa. Salsa. I, I'm growing to it. I'm growing closer to it right now. But you know, kind of more revolutionary protest songs. Yeah, from, from, um, you were going to make a mix of that stuff. Uh, what kind of stuff? So is this more like sort of folkloric type styles, like indigenous styles, basically? Or what would you say is kind of some of the styles of the music that you would put on this mix? Yeah, so this is not exclusive to Venezuela. I guess it's kind of it's kind of transversal to Latin America. But, you know, at least for me, so I, I, I'm not an expert, so people shouldn't take this too seriously. Nah, my, 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 my origins in terms of Latin American music is Chile. So Chile, from the I guess the 1960s, had this movement called uh, Nueva Canción, the new the new Chilean song, which, on one hand, looked to rescue these kind of traditional styles that were, you know, in in danger because of all the kind of uh, immersion into into Western Western styles, and also use that you know to Put, put them at the service of popular struggles that were going on at the time. And then after Allende wins the presidency in 1970, then it becomes even a more concerted effort to actually reclaim and, and be proud of these styles, which then, of course, extend from then on. And this kind of, this process in different shapes and forms takes place in, in, other, in other countries of Latin America. In, in Venezuela, the one uh, standout artist is, is Ali Primera, who has perhaps a, a simpler style compared to, to the Chilean folkloric uh, artists, but at the same time, he actually speaks very directly about you know, the, the popular desires and the popular struggles at a time when neoliberalism was kind of uh, becoming hegemonic with all these uh, US-aligned governments in, in Latin America. So this so, was uh, yeah. this was like, uh, he was around sort of in the 70s, 80s. So I saw, yes, I saw you guys so, had like a short sort of video about him. Yes, so that, that's recommended for, for, for listeners. He was around from the late 60s until he died in a tragic car accident in 1984-85. And then uh, he was kind of forgotten because, uh, you know, what he said was very uncomfortable for the people who, who were in power. And then, of course, as you'd expect, he was rescued by the Bolivar, Bolivar Revolution. And then he became kind of the soundtrack of these early struggles under Chavez. And not only that, he also, he also inspired a new generation of, of artists and, and, and singers and composers who kind of mirror, you know, circling back, they kind of mirror this Chilean initiative where they are inspired by you know telling the tale of all the revolutionary things that are being done but also making an effort to rescue the traditional venezuelan styles which uh, there are a lot of them we actually have a, a, a long-standing desire to have a, a project kind of doing a compilation of different venezuelan music styles so, so people abroad can, can get an idea of the richness and the kind of instruments and because venezuela has not only the indigenous cultures but there was also slavery so all that mix which of course is tragic and generates a lot of struggle from below, but it also left a very rich cultural imprint, which is still present and was kind of fostered and rescued by the Bolivian Revolution. So that's that's something interesting to look at that we hope to to do at some point. Yeah, I was kind of blown away because uh, you know there's also like with Colombia too, there was kind of crossover where there's kind of Colombian covers of like Fela Kuti songs, 
you know? So there's kind of like, obviously, you know, the sort of Afro styles, you know, from slavery, from, you know, basically kind of crossed over in these countries. And of course, something when you're growing up here, you're kind of just, you know, you're not really knowing about all that kind of like sort of cultural exchange until you start kind of getting a little deeper into digging. You're like, wow, that's crazy. They, you know, they were listening to Fela in the 70s. I mean, it makes sense, you know, but it's obviously also pre-internet. So you kind of wonder how much records went around. But yeah, you can find those styles and then, you know, kind of gets incorporated into their own styles, you know. Yeah, and Venezuela has some particularities which are, are geographical in the sense that you have the Andes, you also have these Venezuelan plains which extend to Colombia, and then you have the, the Caribbean side. So all of this, you, you have different styles that also get, of course, they talk to each other and mix. So yeah, it, it's very rich in that sense. And, and for, some, for some reason, not, not that well known abroad. And also now, I mean, I don't pay too much attention to the music scene, but you have all these uh, reggaeton styles that kind of trump trump everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have like dance styles that kind of come in and sort of uh, take over for what it's worth. Um, but uh, and you guys obviously you counter a lot of Western, uh, you know, like kind of corporate narratives um, about Venezuela. But also, how is the press there, like in general? Because you were saying obviously Venezuelan analysis came out of you know, the 2002 coup and kind of like almost probably what you would see with how Western press covered the Bolivian coup where it's, it's kind of that Malcolm X quote over and over again. Like they'll have you rooting for the oppressors and think the oppressed are the enemy. So, um, I mean, we can get into Western corporate press too, because they're obviously awful, but I mean, how is the press there also? Like, is it still kind of also corporate and kind of like, sort of bourgeois elite owned kind of stuff, like a lot of the corporate press in Venezuela or in countries around there? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is going to sound pretty harsh, but the press here is very mediocre. Uh, I mean, beginning with the, with the corporate press, I mean, you, you had this uh, US-backed regime that was kind of, you had two main parties that alternated and you had this bourgeoisie I mean, Venezuela had a specific kind of capitalism, a kind of rentier capitalism because of the, the hegemony of oil over everything else. So these elite, elite sectors kind of grew because they were close to the oil rent and, and then they used that rent to, to set up their businesses, which were not really productive, but more centered around distribution and consumption. So their, their identity kind of mirrors that. So you have this very uh, monopolistic sectors of, of the economy, like these food conglomerates, which then translate, as you'd expect, to not, not only to the media, but also to cultural production. But in the media in particular, you had kind of a few sources that kind of controlled everything. And because of their class nature, as you'd expect, they were very hostile to Chavez from the beginning. And there were constant battles. And these, were, these, these media outlets were, as you'd expect, ex- super excited about this very short-lived coup in 2002. And then, of course, the hammer of uh, law enforcement fell on them, and some of them lost their, their public broadcasting licenses. But, but they're still around. I mean, they, they complain about unfair treatment. And I guess in, in, some, in some way, they are right, not, not not for their own reasons, but I think the government is a bit clumsy sometimes. I mean, stuff like uh, blocking blocking access on... I mean, if you have the public internet ser- service provider, you cannot access some of these writing-wing websites. You have to, to use a VPN and so on. 
I don't think that's very effective. I think it just it's kind of a, a half-assed solution to 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 what should be an actual more concerted effort to to counter their the propaganda. And I was I was saying I was going to be a bit harsh because I also think the the, the state outlets need to do better. I think they they are just too comfortable repeating whatever the government says and not re not even bothered not even bothering to explain things to a to a deeper level so i mean sometimes it's it's, uh, it's absurd that we are looking for i don't know uh, imagine that there was a, a large land estate that was nationalized in 2010 and we are trying to and something comes up right now and we're trying to, to dig for information and very often we'll find uh, more uh, we'll find deeper reports in venezuelan analysis than we'll find in in venezuelan sources that's just focus on on you know quoting some some official and not giving a not not really informing people and so you're kind of they're not them. really like doing the sort of deeper journalism where it's kind of like yeah I think even though you guys they are end up mirroring, mirroring the enemy in, in in that sense right right and i mean it's a tricky thing because i still feel like in the states I don't know. It's 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 crazy to me, but it just seems like there's people that just still have a lot of faith in corporate media. So it's just it's a hard thing to penetrate. I mean, I'm glad you guys are out there, but um, you know, and I post a lot of your stuff. Occasionally, you know, I'll get some stuff on Facebook where it's just like, well, Maduro. And it's kind of like it's kind of like trying to pierce that. I don't know. It's almost like a fog. You know, it's like it's kind of like they just bombard things, even if it's not true. And then you've even also had videos, which is very real, about even like video games in Hollywood, like oh, the yeah. Jack Ryan thing, which was like classic. Like Jim from The Office becomes a CIA agent. I mean, it's like yeah, the shit is so pathetic. That is crazy. It's so. I mean, I think it's so bad, but it's like it's also crazy. These things are like whatever on Netflix or whatever. They're just pushed on major platforms, you know. Yeah, I think one of the ways. I mean, I think describing it as a fog is a, is a is a proper way to say it. It's not that uh, you know every time journalists are just making a concerted effort to build this kind of misleading propaganda. Rather, there's a narrative that's already built, and if you just go along with the current, you'll just end up reproducing these things. You'll end up teaching these things in in, in journalism in journalism schools. So it really takes a kind of a critical effort, not only from journalists, but also from the audience to at one point question, you know, is this true? Is there any evidence to back these claims? So in that sense, we always make a, a point of saying that it's, I mean, corporate media respond to corporate interests. So we do criticize them, but at some point we cannot be surprised at whose interests they're defending at the end of the day. So what's perhaps more, uh, what, what, Effective what should be fought? Yes, it's, it's people actually understanding where their information should come from in this kind of class contradiction where you're getting the, the, your, your information and building your worldviews around something that's being fed from your, your class enemy. So, you know, we go back to that Malcolm quote that you end up supporting the oppressor and, and hating the oppressed. Yeah, yeah, because even like uh, when Juan Guaido pulled that stunt, what is it, the Battle of the Bridges or whatever, when he was like the sort of fake food convoy. Yeah, it's actually like, third. third there, that was sort of like a class, that was like, you know, almost like a perfect example in like, you know, 
It's like they, you know, they torched, you know, they were kind of blaming it on, you know, Maduro's people. But then, of course, they torched it themselves. I mean, it's just like they're almost just trying to create stories, knowing that the corporate media, no matter what they do, is always just going to point their thumb at the other side or whatever and say, hey, they yeah, did it. You yeah, know? It's, it's the basic question. I mean, if something's on fire, maybe wonder if the people handling uh, incendiary devices had anything to do with it, it's, you know, and they were actually close. But, you know, it, it's this thing that they end, they end up spreading because no one is, a, is actually willing to ask any questions. So it just gets repeated because it also feeds your, it's kind of a confirmation bias. It feeds what you already believe. Yeah, like if you're already kind of halfway there because you're bombarded by all this corporate press and then like here's yet yeah, another why, example. Why and the, and the concept is, well, they can't be lying about every article. But that's, I think, the sort of global aspect. Well, maybe they can't. <laughs> <laughs> maybe every yeah. single article is bullshit like i mean i just don't i don't know why people have a hard time grasping that concept i think it's more like they don't want to i don't think they want to see it like that but it's yeah, kind of because it's maybe it's uh, kind of painful then you start to your own view of things might start to crumble a little bit yeah know? i mean it's a it's a dangerous proposition it's kind of the blue pill red pill from the matrix yeah. i never know which one which one is which <laughs> i mean at you, you, you can understand. I mean, it's kind of frightening, this idea that you cannot trust anyone and, you know, everyone is pushing some interests. But it's only after you, you take this as your starting point that you can actually start to understand and have your own criteria. I mean, of, of course, you cannot scrutinize everything. We're not, we're not all supposed to be professional journalists, professional journalists, but at least have a kind of healthy skepticism when something's fed to you you know what 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 are the priors you know if they lied to me about the war in iraq should i actually believe another uh, pro-war propaganda campaign which, which isn't to say that it's uh, automatically false but you know taking history into account you should at least be skeptical about it. yeah i mean as people have stated it's like to me a default starting position is you should think it's bullshit until otherwise because yeah, I mean, yeah. if they've lied to you that many times why the hell would you start off trusting them you know? Exactly. It's actually something that you see quite often when it comes to Venezuela, who carries the burden of proof. So, for example, when we're talking about Venezuelan elections, the corporate media always says, oh, the elections were illegitimate. But, and, and then it's up to, to the Venezuelan government to deny it. You know, why, why shouldn't you have to prove why they're legitimate instead of asking them to deny, right? So who, who, has, who has the burden of proof? And I think is, even is in uh, 2018, you guys were mentioning uh, that they were already calling it fraudulent before the election even happened. Yeah. So, so there's like the class. I mean, I mean, like, hint, motherfucker. That, that's, <laughs> like, do that's you get it? It's like they're already right. like selling it to you before it even happened. You know, kind of like this Russian invasion in Ukraine. It's like, you know. The extreme, the extreme extrapolation, you know, the chronicle of a fraud foretold. Because, I mean, if you, if you don't have to prove it afterwards, you know, why not just announce it before and, and not bother with, with, any, with any evidence, right? Because that, that's how low the standard has, has become. And as you were saying, it kind of applies to, to Ukraine, you know, where, you know... Everything, the, the Nicaragua, any, any country that's the quote-unquote troika of tyranny or just any quote-unquote enemy of the U.S., you know, then obviously they're by default shady. And then, you know, you get bombarded from you know, sources, you know, from 20 different sources, but that's the twisted thing. If it's Western corporate media, it doesn't matter if you're yeah. hearing it from like Bloomberg News or from CNN or Fox. It's kind of like they're all imperialists. They're all going to basically toe 
the State Department line. It just might be different varying shades. Like I've gotten into arguments with people about NPR because I'll say NPR is right wing. Just look at their foreign reporting. They are freaking imperialists. But it's like, oh, yeah. but then they had this nice broccoli recipe and blah, blah, blah. And, you yeah. know. It's, so it's kind of like it's it's like you can almost have every shade. You have like propaganda for the liberals to support imperialism. You have propaganda for the fascists to support imperialism. They kind of try to hit it from all different angles, you know. Yeah, I got in trouble one time on Twitter because I called the European Union vegetarian imperialism, and so I had to clarify that I had nothing against vegetarianism. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was just well, that's how. Yeah, it's kind of like when the IDF advises, you, you know, advertises that you know they have vegan soldiers and vegan boots, and it's like great. So you have a vegan yeah, boot actually, on the on the neck of a Palestinian. I'm sure that makes him feel a lot better, or she, you know. And also the the kind of uh, equal opportunity LGBT, you know. In 2020, there was this uh, half-baked mercenary invasion of Venezuela. Oh yeah, that, was which was, at, was in, in in a way is the real Jack Ryan plot, and that's the TV yeah. show that should be made because wasn't it Venezuelan fishermen that kind of like helped disrupt it? Right, they saw them yeah, coming. That, it's classic. Uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit. That's 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 the heroic version. Oh, okay. <laughs> The more the more details you know, the worse it gets. So basically, this this, this there were two boats. One of them actually made it to shore and was quickly neutralized. The, the other one tried to escape to these Dutch islands in the Caribbean, but it ran out of fuel, and so it was just drifting. <laughs> it came close to shore, and you see the fishermen uh, pointing again at them, but actually they surrender because there's a helicopter <laughs> on top of them, pushing them towards towards the shore. But yeah, uh, Jack Ryan is much more like uh, this Operation Gideon than what you see in, in the Netflix series. But what came after this uh, this disaster was that there was actually a, I mean, the Venezuelan opposition tried to distance themselves and as much as they could, but you know, the, you can't really escape it. So there was a contract that they signed uh, with this mercenary contractor from, from Florida, this kind of Rambo impersonators who thought that they could just barge into a country and yeah, it's like some imperialist the, racist A-teams shit. Or yeah, overwhelmed <laughs> a huge army with uh, modern equipment and so on. But this contract is actually, it's fascinating, the, the stuff that they have there. So it, I think the, the payment was something like $500 million. And this was the, the cheapest bid, that's why they chose it. But then somehow, if the this new government that would take power could not pay, then they could actually claim this in oil barrels or stuff like this. But what, oh, what wow, I, I didn't know that part. That's crazy. <laughs> why I brought this up is that they have a clause that, I mean, they have this thing that they are going to, the, the mercenaries are going to train the new Venezuelan armed forces, and they have a clause that says that it's going to be a, an equal opportunity with minorities and so on. <laughs> so make imperialism poke again. Yeah, no, there was like uh, this joke uh, that was going around because I think REI, the camping company, was uh, had some kind of anti-union thing, but they started their sort of anti-union podcast with my name is blah, blah, blah. I go by he, you know, he, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, they introduced the, their pronouns and they said we're on stolen land from blah, blah, blah. But, but like, meanwhile, it's like your podcast is about busting unions, but I'm glad you got your pronouns right. You know, yeah, like my pronouns I, are anti slash union. You know? <laughs> it's a crazy. I mean, the thing is, you kind of need comedy because it's just so depressing. This world, it really is. Yeah, it's like I mean, real life black mirror shit. It's just dark. It's a very yeah. dark world. You know. 
Black Mirror is no longer no longer scary. The I think it was the CIA that also had these advertisements about how they were, uh, you know, allowing women to run their murdering operations now. So that's supposed to be. Yeah, they had a series of commercials like I am a Latina woman and they had oh, a yeah. gay person that was like running the library that, you know, it's like the woke CIA, you know. We so have it's, it's, again, I'm really glad I have, you know, a Latina woman and a gay person torturing me in a black side in, you know, Romania. <laughs> I mean, people just I don't know. I feel like the logic, like you got to think it out. But it's sort of like I guess if you inundate enough TV shows where the CIA is a good guy, you kind of forget about, you know, what they did in Indonesia or all these different places around the world. You yeah, know? I mean, if we start if we start numbering them, <laughs> we'll be. Here. Yeah, we will be here for a while. But I mean, the nice thing though is with all the BS in the world. Uh, there seems to be like you know more anti-imperialist media, especially coming out of Latin America, like the was it the Kasachuan news? I can never say that right, but uh, yeah, Kasachuan that was kind of like Venezuela analysis with the 2002 coup. Kasachuan they, they were already up. They were connected to this uh, coca, this coca region in Cochabamba. They had a radio station and then they produced this uh, website, which was actually. I mean, I, th I think I'm not mistaken in saying that they were the only on-the-ground English source during the coup and then in Bolivia. the aftermath. In Bolivia, yes. Yeah. So they were actually pretty important. They're, they're still pretty important now to because they have evidence of the things that went on and they can set the record straight. When I mean, right now there's an absurd campaign that uh, this short Inez or whatever. In Bolivia, yeah. she, I know I she's on yeah, hunger no, strike so, and having issues and all. It just seems like, again, more comedy. It seems like, you know, a Latin soap yeah, opera. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how, can you, how can you turn a figure like her into a martyr? Well, I remember they were like coming out when they when they were when they took over and they had like the sort of like oversized Bible, right? They were like swearing on it looked like some like cartoon Bible from like some like Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. These people are crazy, <laughs> yeah. man. They really are wild. But they're the thing is, again, what's scary is they are fascists, you know. So that was nice that they were able to turn that around in Bolivia because, you know, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it, it, it was pretty heartening that I mean, it, it was clear when once they started to look for whatever excuses that they could find, they were trying to push back the election and then they were delaying the, the results. So, you know, indirectly you knew that things were going the right way. And as soon as people had the chance, of course, they were going to throw out this uh, kind of imperialist aligned uh, murdering government, which isn't to say that people cannot have legitimate criticisms about uh, the mass and that that's part of why all these processes are so dynamic. But I think perhaps one of the, the missing things in this in the corporate media coverage that you know the fact that you are not happy with the current government or that you wanted to improve in some areas doesn't mean that the only alternative is are these u.s backed fascists yeah though it seems to be like that's how they're kind of trying to steer that sort of reality and it's like in terms of having like an as in jail or you know going to trial sometimes i wonder and i'm kind of curious i've, I've asked this a few times on twitter though people have said well Someone like Wang Guaido is, is such a clown that he's not really. But I, I've always thought, like, you know, if these people are like, you know, wasn't his name on like the contract or associates, like, why aren't these people in jail? And I, I know he's kind of like doesn't really have much of a rep at this point, but still, like, they're, you know, or who's the other dude, Leonardo Lopez, who's like chilling in Spain or whatever. I mean, these guys seem like they're just 
the more I read about them, they seem like complete terrorists. Why aren't they in jail, you know? Or how do they get yeah, out, I mean, you know? Yeah, I mean, terrorists and, and foreign agents. I think with Guaido, there's kind of a, a two-level calculation. In the, in the beginning, there was actually a kind of a, a legitimate calculation that, you know, if we do something to this, to this moron, then there's going to be a swift response from the United States, and that's going to make things worse. Right now, even though anyone in their right mind wants and cannot argue against throwing Guaido in jail. I think he has become kind of a, kind of useful for the government because he's a known quantity. And as long as he's there, and as long as the US recognizes him as the quote unquote, I mean, we need a lot of air quotes for this uh, interim president. A lot of like gigantic air quotes. <laughs> sorry. So sorry. as long as, <laughs> it's okay. As long as he's there and the US kind of forces everyone else to kind of at not not necessarily line up behind him, but not cause many waves and and, and go in different directions. Uh, you, you're kind of <laughs> if you're the government, you kind of feel safe if this is uh, you are measuring yourself against. So in that sense, the longer it goes, the more it kind of triggers these internal clashes inside the opposition, and the more it demoralizes their more uh, active and right wing base. So in that sense, I mean, even though in terms of uh, justice. He, he should have been in jail for, I don't know, three years. In terms of political calculus, uh, you, you kind of understand what, why, why the government is, is keeping him around. Right. And then, like, in terms of, like, uh, you know, like the sort of National Endowment for the Democracy and USAID, I mean, I know I think, like, Nicar didn't Nicaragua, like, pass a law talking about, like, foreign money sponsoring you know kind of banning that is there a similar law like that in venezuela or how can you keep this like ned money out of you know supporting these kind of like disingenuous opposition groups you know yeah not, not just opposition but also media outlets media outlets and, too yeah and then and ngos kind of this whole this whole ngo industry i mean in a way the government has tightened the screws on some ngos that you know have foreign funding, but I think it's more of a question of being vigilant. In the case of Guaido, it's actually more absurd than just getting USAID money. He's actually uh, funding his operation with money that the United States stole from Venezuela. Right, from like so Citgo, right? Yeah, not just Citgo, but there were also bank accounts in, in city banks, so some hundreds of millions of, of dollars that were seized. And every, every year, this kind of make-believe government uh, submits a budget to the Treasury Department, which then approves, and that's how they they pay their own uh, pretend ministers and pretend secretaries and pretend journalists. And, and even, and like, lawyers' fees when they're getting sued, right? Weren't they using that for yeah. their own lawyers' fees? They were, like, dipping into stolen money to, you know... But that that's even more absurd and... I mean, maybe it's it's too big of a detour to to go here, but from the moment when Guaido was recognized in 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 places like the United States, <coughs> the fact that the the government recognizes someone else as a legitimate representative means that he's the one that gets to appear before U.S. courts. So Venezuela has some ongoing litigation with these multinational corporations like uh, ConocoPhillips going back to some uh, nationalizations under Chavez, and then these always go to these international arbitration tribunals that, for some magical coincidence, always rule in favor of corporations. How funny. And then these get... 
<laughs> yes. How surprising. No, no, no one, no one has detected the pattern here so far. But then, of course, these things, <laughs> these things get appealed, and then perhaps the <clears throat> the amounts that are that are due get get reduced to a more manageable level. You you, you agree on a payment uh, on a payment schedule, and you move on. But Guaido kind of took over this litigation, and as time went on. He started, or, or his lawyers rather, started to delay their appearances in court and in some cases to not show up at all. So you have ConocoPhillips winning arguments by default. And so you wonder, you know, whose interest is Guaido serving? And it's not, it's not really too much of a jump, too, too much of a leap. I mean, these, these right-wing people are huge fans of corporations they are funded by corporations so it's not out of the realm of, of possibility that they would actually act now that they have the power to actually further corporate interests so in a way you wonder why the united states has kept this circus of an interim administration in place even though it has not uh, achieved anything and i i kind of argue in an article that i wrote some some three months ago that they are in place to kind of ensure that these Venezuelan assets that were frozen actually end up in the in the right hands, in the right corporate hands, before the Venezuelan government can actually, uh, you know, get them back. Yeah, even if stuff like sounds kind of uh, ridiculous, then if you kind of look at it from a sort of geo, like geopolitics, like almost like you know risk board or you know the giant chess board, you know, then it's kind of like it's almost like oh, you know, all the hype about Russia and Ukraine, is it really even about the people of Ukraine or the Russian-speaking people in Ukraine? No, it's about, really about the Nord Stream, the the Nord Stream pipeline, which they were able to, to cancel, you know? It's, yeah, so it's so, kind of so, like you yeah. kind of like almost look beyond that, you know, or even like, you know, the Uyghur genocide and all that kind of BS, but maybe it's a way to kind of keep the Belt and Road Initiative and get them and keep them from building pipelines and keep, China from being connected to Eurasia. I know like Pepe Escobar yeah, has kind of talked with. about that. And it's kind of like when you look at it from that standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you just, again, even if you have no evidence of these things, you get your media to blast it and get people to kind of like, it's almost trying to s slow it down, you know, slow down, you know, from a business standpoint, isolate China or Russia or people you don't like, you know? Yeah. Same, same with the, with the Syrian, the Syrian proxy conflict there was an analysis that was kind of ignored that this also had to do with gas pipelines that were going to cross through Syria and perhaps marginal, marginalize US allies. So it's always, uh, you know, if, if the media is pointing too much towards something, what, what's hiding behind? So in, in, that line of, in that line of thought, we actually we can actually wonder if this entire op, uh, opposition circus is just a huge uh, it's a shell smoke game. cloud. Yeah, because yeah, also... Distracted from yeah, because also the from 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 grabbing these Venezuelan assets in in the United States and elsewhere, like the, the gold reserves in the United Kingdom. And I was just going to mention that, which is up to what? I mean, I think originally it was like one point, you know, five or seven. I think it's now probably close to two. Yeah, two billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane. Like they, it's to me, and I think this is what kind of drives me crazy when people kind of follow corporate media. It's like it's straight up piracy. It's straight up theft. Like, you know, the, the, the sort of like civilized Western world is really just they're the barbaric ones because that's just it's a straight up freaking piracy. I mean, it's not yeah, your freaking money. Civilized deserves the same. 
Civilized deserves the same amount of giant air quotes. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, because they basically just straight up sold $2 billion in gold. And they just, it's almost like the bank's like, no, nah, it's not yours because we decided this other person's the president, which are they even deciding that now? I think the EU basically dissed Guaido recently, right? Or semi recent. I mean, the US is still recognizing them, but. Yeah, but, but, but since the UK. Uh, is now out of the European Union. It can go, go. It can take its own its own crazy decisions, right. and not just follow someone else's crazy decisions. But in in the UK, it's actually a bind for them because uh, we, it's it's no secret that London is kind of a destination for fortunes from around the world. And now there's even the, this huge debate surrounding Russian oligarchs because only only the bad guys have oligarchs. Only the, the bad guys have, have oligarchs, exactly, exactly, or strongmen. But you know, Maduro's a quote-unquote yeah, exactly. strongman. You know, exactly, Maduro and, and Erdogan. But you know, if you want to to present yourself as a destination for for foreign fortunes, and then you can just seize them uh, with no real solid justification, it's kind of a dangerous precedent. So that's why the United Kingdom is not. Uh, make, making it's not ruling on this case. It basically goes to one court, which then takes sends it back to another court. Then there's a, a pronouncement from number ten. It goes back to the lower court, and so on. And, and they're just going to kick it around until you know the United States decides it for them, and they can just be be rid of this issue. Yeah, because it just seems like these things just drag on and on and on. And also, um, even the 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 businessman that was helping out uh, Venezuela, Alex Saab. You know, so that's yeah, another that's, crazy that's story that, again, like in Western media, very underreported. But, uh, you know, he was kind of helping broker deals to get food and stuff. And then he was traveling back. And I think his plane was in Cape Verde in Africa just on a stop yeah, to get gas. Fuel. But then they kind of just, you know, again, the, the power of uh, the U.S. and the West and kind of like kind of pushing weaker states to kind of do what they want to do, you know, and. So that's yeah, like a can, whole crazy story. They're just a, straight up arresting uh, diplomats they don't like and throwing exactly. charges at you cannot, them. You cannot imagine a weaker state than, than Cape Verde, which is this tiny archipelago in, in Western Africa. And uh, the Alex Saab case, I mean, is, is uh, absurd no matter which way you look at it. I mean, the fact that he was arrested and the Interpol warrant was only issued after he was yeah, arrested. Yeah, that's right. Again, another one. <laughs> another thing. <laughs> exactly. It was issued the, the fact, next the day. The fact that, that he had... This, this this small issue of the Vienna Convention protecting diplomats, which I mean, it, it's actually going to be ruled in the U in the U.S. court in in April. I I don't see what what's there to debate. I mean, regardless of whether you like him or not, or whether you have charges against him or not. I mean, if he has diplomatic immunity, that kind of supersedes everything else. But of course, we're talking about uh, about the United States and this whole this this entire. Uh, mumbo jumbo about the, the rules based order is really more of a more of a, a manner of speech than actually well, it actually it's, meaning anything. It's the rules based order is for everyone else. I mean, it's it's kind of like I kind yeah. of look at the U.S. as sort of like <clears throat> almost a classic abuser, you know, because it's sort of do as I say, not as I do, and obviously, and then a lot of gaslighting. You know, they're the bad guys. I mean, it's kind of like what's the difference yeah, between a pathologically lying abusive son of a bitch i mean that's kind of what the u.s is you know i don't know yeah and also want, wanting other countries to be subjected to, to certain organizations like international criminal court whereas the united states is not a, a subscriber so 
you know, what kind of, uh, again, quote unquote, justice, justice system is this? It's only for, but, Af but it's only for Africans, the ICC. That's the Africans, only people that yeah, go to jail, yeah, yeah. you know, or someone like Maduro, Serbians, if they could yeah. get them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, classic stuff. So yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, hypocritical is, is is even fair enough. I mean, it's yeah, short, no, it so. doesn't go far enough. It really is true. And uh, and then even like the sanctions, which have been an ongoing thing, and and not just in Venezuela. I think they're sanctioning like two thirds of the world at this point. But something that kind of also drives me crazy, and this is also applies to Cuba, at least Western is that they look at like the issues that, say, Venezuela or Cuba is having and getting certain things because of the sanctions. And then, again, kind of like consuming Western media, it's more apt to think like, oh, it's the ineptitude of the government. And it's kind of like, again, sort of ignoring why all these problems are, are happening. And uh, I don't know. It's just, again, a hard thing. I don't understand why people don't understand that. I mean, I can see it because if you consume Western media, the sanctions, if mentioned at all, are maybe mentioned in the 19th paragraph, you know, as an aside, even yeah. though that's the real fucking issue. It's actually, you know? it's, it's, it's infuriating. And, you know, at Fantasy Analysis, I have also written a lot about sanctions. There's this uh, website called Fair, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. The best. Where they're we awesome. kind of, they're I great. Kind of, they're awesome, yes. And I, and I kind of grab the way that sanctions are portrayed in, in corporate outlets and, and kind of explain how they are misleading. I mean, there are many ways. One of them is, is kind of talking about an economic crisis and sanctions as if they are two completely separate phenomena. And I mean, it's kind of, there. there's kind of a, uh, a marginal or, or a, a, a side point, which is that uh, you know Venezuela was already in a in a recession when the the major sanctions arrived. But that's like saying, oh, you know, the the guy had a had a headache when he was hit by a truck. That's besides the point. Right. You, you should not right. use that to downplay to downplay the the consequence of the actions taken in this case by by your own government. But my my favorite and the worst of all is that sanctions are described as um, like the United States imposed sanctions to kind of cut Maduro's uh, cash flow. You know, like you have this, these measures that affect, I don't know, 30 million people and you manage to describe it as if you're taking the allowance away from your ill-behaved child. <laughs> that, that's, that's how misleading it is. I mean, it's a very insidious term because people, as, as people have mentioned, it's like this finance term. But if, if you really translate it out, sanctions mean death. And there was even that uh, report, I don't know if it was a UN report or something, kind of describing that it was up to 40,000 Venezuelans, obviously probably more, it's probably a conservative figure, that have died because yeah, that, of sanctions, just, not getting medical stuff. And so it's like, it's it's warfare. But if you said the U.S. is, is waging economic war on two-thirds of the world, well, then that wouldn't really play so well in their things. So they come up with these kind of innocuous yeah. terms, you know. It's kind of like junk. It's, it's of, junk English. It's like, yeah. It, I mean, like how everything is always like if it's violence from the oppressor, it's always in a passive voice, like an officer involved shooting. But meanwhile, like Maduro's yeah, strong arm Maduro and his thugs, you know, burned someone alive, even though actually it was the opposition that burned someone alive. Or it's just infuriating. It really is fucking infuriating. You know, was wasn't it? Uh... I think it was a, a, a U.S. missile that hit uh, an, a hospital in Afghanistan, and the headline was uh, "Missile Hits 
uh, hospital, like, you know, missile went there on, on its own, it kind of Well, there, well and, the, the classic one was one of the, uh, the Gaza massacres. It was like missile finds, you know, people on the, on the beach, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, it was just, this missile was just drifting around on its own and just found these people inadvertently, yes. you know. Because I think so they had bombed some people watching thing. a soccer game on like a Gaza beach, but it's like missile finds, you know? It's like, go fuck yourself. I don't know. It's just, it really makes me angry. Yeah. It really does. Because it's almost like this very polite language, very intellect, like like The Economist. They're, I think, my most despised publication because they kind of coined that kind of English, specifically UK English kind of snobbery, hardcore imperialism yeah, it's like every and, and just very very racist but like you know it kind of comes off like it's just it's classic pseudo intellectualism yes. yeah exactly yeah but but i mean if you look at it what it actually does or, or the kind of the flip side of this kind of understated bullshit is that it dehumanizes the victims right yeah that the victims are, are, are not as human as as the aggressors and that's why you can just talk about these things as if they're uh, whether it's sanctions or bombings you, you get them like they're natural phenomena, you know, like like they're unavoidable. And these people from the global south are just, you know, helpless victims that the global north has nothing to do with. So that's what's most infuriating about the coverage. Yeah, and I think also one of the things that's kind of nice uh, that you guys do is you kind of go into the history of the Bolivarian Revolution and Venezuela. And it's it's another thing that I think is kind of infuriating is not just the absolute bullshit stories we're bombarded with, but what is ignored, what is not talked about. Like, you're not going to get any kind of real historical sense of what has happened in Venezuela in the last 200 years, the last 20 years reading corporate media. So it's like, again, somebody has to do this stuff so that, you know, people like myself can kind of fill in the dots with some of this stuff, you know? Yeah, that's actually a, a great point because, I mean, if you look at the corporate corporate media coverage, you'll, you'll get the sense that the, the, the United States is attacking Venezuela because it, it didn't like the 2018 election results. I mean, and, and that's, that's absolute bullshit. I mean, if you, if you go back, there's been an aggression for, for 20 years and some more overt coup attempts. And then you have to understand why is the U.S. so hell-bent on overthrowing the Bolivarian Revolution. And there, there's kind of the quick and easy explanation, which is largest oil reserves in the world. You can actually stop there. But, I mean, if you want to go deeper and understand why, why is it so dangerous, why is the, this, this process so dangerous to the United States, and then you make the parallel with Cuba, why is Cuba such a danger to the United States, is this idea with all its flaws and all its contradictions. I mean, we don't, we don't need to, to over-glorify it or, or look over its shortcomings because, I mean, it's a dynamic process and we're trying, we or the Venezuelans are trying to build something new on the fly. But it's this idea that there's an alternative model to this uh, capitalist neoliberalism. That's, the, that's the, the really dangerous thing, right? That you can actually build something where you put your natural resources at the service of... of uh, lifting people's living standards, that you can actually create new kinds of uh, grassroots democracy. That's not just this uh, liberal vote, go vote every four years bullshit. So th that's that's what's really dangerous, and that's kind of the the bad example. That of course, if it spreads, then that's the end of of U.S. hegemony, not just in the hemisphere. You know, everyone. Yeah, because almost it's like, why is the U.S. so like? involved with trying to put the thumb on a small country like Cuba, but that's because you can't show any success stories. And even like, I know Brian Becker from like the socialist program on 
Breakthrough News, and they've been doing a lot of good stuff too. But he did like a like a three part series on the history of the USSR, and it's like it's really crazy. Like every socialist country that's even just tried to get off the ground, even at the beginning, constantly pounded. You know, it's just like, and so I I think sometimes, especially if you're in the West and you're in a country that's you know, perpetrating all this imperialism and you're like, well, you're not social, you're not doing the right kind of socialism. It's like, it's like, I don't think people understand how much pressure these countries are under just to try and even get their system off the ground against, you know, arguably the most sophisticated and biggest military ever built on earth. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. And also the, the domestic threats, like this entrenched elites that have been around in the case of Venezuela for 200 years and they have built this very oil dependent model and, and how do you kind of try and change it on the fly actually that, that's a good point it's actually something that drives me nuts having lived for a long part of my life in, in the US and also in, in Europe this idea that the European left is which actually I mean if you look at them in principle they they do challenge I mean the more the, not not the the Democrats and, and the DSA and so on, but the more radical ones, they actually challenge the status quo and so on, and they understand that capitalism is behind all these inequalities. Yet at the same time, they seem happy to accept the official version on, on Venezuela, so or in, in Cuba and Nicaragua and, and and what have you. So here you have these these this countries that, despite this this uh, bombardment, uh, either physical bombardment, either you know military bombardment or media bombardment and sanctions and so on. They still have produced lots of uh, fascinating things where there's a lot you can learn from, and you, you'll just dismiss them and saying, "Oh, you know, they're they're too authoritarian. We don't like that. That's not a model for us." And you know, you, I hope I'm not being too harsh, but no, it's please not like do. I, I, feel, no, I feel like you know, like I mean, just because I follow a lot of whatever communist anti-imperialists on Twitter, and especially from around the world, and you know, the Western left with again air quotes not quite as big as the other air quotes but still air quotes the western left uh gets shit on a lot and it's i think it's deserved <laughs> you know what i mean it's like because yeah, they come I, out I, with I, these I, freaking hot takes where it's like you know i don't know man it's kind of it's just really it really corny in my opinion it's very like i'm trying yeah. to listen to people in these countries that actually know the time you know or just people who just know the time that understand that kind of concept as opposed to like you're doing it wrong and like you're sitting in a country like you know like again like even like the sort of Bernie Sanders left where it's like well you know socialism but I don't mean Cuba or Venezuela I mean like you know <laughs> Finland or all this stuff and it's like well all those countries where do you think they got their wealth you know probably back in the day from African slaves from all that shit from the global yeah. south so it's easy to look at those it's countries not, say like mystery, well right? they're so good and they're cool and whatever and it's like Again, it's kind of like ignoring a, a, a sort yeah. of like basic sort of like structural analysis of the, of the world, in my opinion, you know. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're totally correct. I mean, and what I was saying, I mean, I have a lot of respect for leftist movements in, in the global north and so on, but it's not like they have achieved a, a whole lot in recent years. And so in that sense, I think it's a very short term calculation, like the example that you were saying about Sanders that, you know, perhaps if I go along with the, the mainstream narrative and, and I talk shit about Cuba, then perhaps they're going to get off my back. Well, I mean, we have plenty of examples that really doesn't happen. So don't don't compromise your principles thinking that, you know, if I, you're going to fool 
the public and then at some point when you miraculously reach power then you're going to do the actual things that you want to do i mean it doesn't work like that i mean if you have principles i'm not saying that you need to go out on 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 a stage and say that you want to emulate the venezuelan government it's not like that i understand that there's an audience that's been brainwashed and you need to connect to them at some point but you know if if you just conform to everything that's in the mainstream nar narrative at some point how are you actually different from your opponents and you see that a lot in in european politics where you have these these leftist parties that you know they kind of soften and soften and soften their stance until they kind of get into power they get into power in, in kind of junior partners in coalitions and then all they do is actually legitimize the very policies that they uh were supposed to, to oppose in the beginning so yeah you have I to mean, wonder at one point at, 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 at which point you're going to stand up for what you believe in it's milk toast. It's like they're as strong as a soggy piece of toast. <laughs> you know? It's like it's just like because even if you look at like Sanders like uh, statements on Maduro, it's like in, or even AOC or some of the squad. It's mad corny. It's super, super corny. Yeah. There was I think there was a whole and thing of AOC like kind well, of standing right? with like some of the the Bolivian like reactionary people like at one point and you know it's just like yeah and, if you and, have and even it, half a brain why are you taking that picture with these fucks like come on man and, and also and also also Palestine I mean if even on Palestine you cannot take a stand on you know basic things like not supporting more uh you know military aid to Israel and I mean what what's left after that right yeah exactly exactly well uh I know we've been talking for a while, but actually what kind of spurned this whole conversation was uh, you were, you were uh, the Venezuelan analysis uh, Twitter handle was like, you know, you, you had people like kind of like talking shit or something. And then you're like, this is exactly why, you know, you should donate because we were pissing off all these gusanos, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah. Which I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give you 10 bucks right now. That's beautiful. But uh, it's like, I don't know. Maybe you want to talk about like, because this is also something that I think deals with the West is like the sort of Venezuelan, you know, Cuban expat community, which is probably... I don't know about the Venezuelan community, but I know the Cuban community is very right wing, like in terms of like the Florida stuff and like how that may affect because I've had, you know, I try not to argue on Facebook anymore. I just stomp on people and block them because it's a waste of time. But, you know, previous back in the day, you know, you just have like these people that are like, well, the people that I talk to that are from there you know, say that Maduro's this and that and Cuba's this and that. And it's like, well, of course, let's say I was in Cuba and I interviewed a bunch of Trump supporters. And then I could say, well, in America, these people think that, you know, black people are dangerous and everyone should have a gun and shoot them. And, you know, so you can always kind of find reactionary opinions. But I do think that for some reason, you know, some of the, the sort of expat community, I think, also plays an influence even in Western leftists because a lot of times these people saying these things, they would never identify as a right winger or, you know, even a centrist. They probably yeah. think they're leftists and yet, you know, they'll post these things like, here's a nuanced take on Cuba. And it's like, this is reactionary bullshit, man. I feel like people should know better. But again, <laughs> but again, I, I think sometimes it's maybe they're hanging out with like Venezuelans or Cubans in Miami, you know, at a, like a DJ party. And then these guys are like, well, this is how it really is. Maduro's fucked up, man. And that's why my whole family left and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, I mean, it's like, it's like the, the tokenism, you know, I, I cannot be racist because I have a black friend. So you, you had these people, oh, but I, I met a Venezuelan in Harvard 
and he told me that Chavez was terrible. So you know, what what's what's what what more can you say? Right. But I think in the in the kind of the the, the immigrant community, there's kind of there's something particular about uh, the Cuban community, which is is largely true for the Venezuelan community as well, which is that this original wave of of migration from Cuba, you know, in the in the 60s and from Venezuela, perhaps in the early 2000s, these are the elites who migrate, and they have this very deep sense of loss that they had this. In, I mean, an entire country that was there just to satisfy their life projects, and so they have this this uh, rage, and they're foaming at the mouth all the time because this was taken away from them, and not just taken away from them, but taken away from someone who is from. A poor family who is a mestizo, so they, and who, well, who they consider not, beneath them, basically. Exactly, basically. someone who who would only be sufficiently good to either provide them their meat at the butcher shop or to work as security in their condos, and and this is the guy who's now the president. So they have this profound. Uh, rage on one hand and on the other hand this sense of shame that they can no longer tell their rich friends with pride that they're Venezuelans and Venezuelans have uh, you know the most recent Miss Universe but now Venezuela is known for this very provocative and politically incorrect guy who wears a red beret so that that's why it's so irrational I mean the rage that you see in, the, in these uh, Gusano communities is so uh, you know so so vicious and so vitriolic but there's also i mean you're, you're saying people that spout the same nonsense but identify themselves as the as being on the left and they are on the left in that's in the sense that even they can see that trump is too far on the right but when when trump is uh, you know dropping the the sanctions hammer on venezuela they're not going to to say a word so it's kind of a cognitive dissonance where you want to identify yourself as progressive but at the same time, you want to, to legitimize these policies, which in turn uh, are meant to destroy a, an experiment that's actually progressive. Actually progressive. progressive. Yeah. Basis. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. You kind of like want to like ride both lines where it's almost like, oh, no, I'm still progressive. But then but I think but then I you're think not really thinking about like what. Because, again, I think that's the insidiousness of the propaganda where people aren't above that because. You know, you you're gonna have people that I think are left leaning that understand that the United States is fucked up, but then even if they still kind of believe the bombardment a little bit, then you you mm -hmm. get to this kind of nihilist or almost anarchistic type of position where it's like, well, everyone's bad, you know. And I know like yeah. uh, the the Caitlin Johnson, the both sides is yeah, the both mm -hmm. sides shit, which I really like when you both sides empire, when you both sides of the U.S., which is uh, you know, as Caitlin Johnson has put it, like the worst actor by gargantuan means, like there's not even anyone remotely close. So when you're both siding it, in a sense, you're whitewashing empire, even if you're saying, well, they're bad, mm -hmm. but these other character yeah, that isn't bad. not nearly as bad, you know then it's just like yeah, you're kind of whitewashing the empire by default, you know, even if exactly. you're kind of dissing in, it. In the case, exactly. But in, in the case of Cuban Venezuela, I think it, it has in the, in, the, in the U.S. specifically, it has a lot to do with the class nature of these original immigrants. And because they have most of the money, it's no mystery that they end up manipulating and controlling discourse. And not just the discourse, but also the votes or this, the votes in this uh, kind of swing, swing state that's Florida. And that's why... You see a lot of analysis, even from the kind of establishment sources, 
that it's very hard for you know someone someone with no principles like Biden to change course on on, on Venezuela or Cuba because it it would appear soft before this very uh, right wing and very you know active community in Florida, which would cost them votes because that's always the kind of short term mediocre calculation that's in that's in their minds. Yeah, it's kind of twisted. It's almost like, well, we got to get that Nazi vote. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's very it's very very cynical. It's very cynical because it's almost probably the same reason why people don't speak up about Palestine. Because then you know you're going to have again corporate media being like you're anti-Semitic and da da da. Even if it's like trying to say hey, maybe the emperor is not wearing any clothes, like AKA Israel is not a democracy. But then mm-hmm. how many people yeah. you per- know perish the thought. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Well, anyways, I know we've been talking for a while, but uh, I really appreciate, uh, you know, you uh, coming down and, uh, you know, yeah, talking was, down was all the stuff. Yeah. I mean, anything else you want to mention? Uh, what else What else are you guys uh, covering or what else is in the future? I, I didn't even realize you guys were doing like those short videos. So I was watching a bunch of those. There's there's it's they're really yeah, well done, a, man. You guys are kind of like throw, you're throwing a lot of stuff out there and the and the. Um, the podcast is really good too. You know, you're. I think you're talking about the Capesinos, like yeah, that, that whole movement. A... See, that's what I'm saying. It's like it's the kind of like you kind of. Can I was do... going to plug in some Venezuela analysis content. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just this this short videos that you were mentioning. I mean, uh, it, there, there's a temptation to kind of stick to the old kind of media, the blog style, long form. But you know, in this day and age, without compromising too much, you need to find new ways to reach people, and so. That was one one thing that we found, and I think it's it's worked pretty well. That that's a, one of the collaborations we have with Venezuelan outlets. There's a lot of uh, great people here with great skills who are active militants in the Bolivarian Revolution, and so it's always a pleasure to collaborate with them. And yeah, the other thing was just to plug in our our podcast, which is a, a recent initiative where we're hoping to to grow it. And the most recent episode, I mean, our podcast is only focused on Venezuela, so in that sense, it's much narrower than other things that people will find out there. But at the same time, we try to compensate that by going in depth in, in some issues that will help people understand what's going on in Venezuela, the, the background, the history, the struggles, and so on. Beyond even our uh, what, what we are able to say in, in our news coverage, which, I mean, there's only so much you can say, and then you can go into a deeper analysis, look at the different actors. In this case, we always interview activists who are involved in the struggle so in this one we had a, a prominent campesino leader who was saying that the, the sanctions mean that the government is in a tight corner so in that sense you can understand that it's taking a step a step back in economic policy and perhaps favoring some tactical alliances with the bourgeoisie but at the same time there are other actors who are trying to take advantage of of this scenario and try and push back and revert some of the gains that were made in the countryside so then the campesino movements push back. And, and it, it's very interesting to understand that beyond a very manichaeistic dynamic, which is what you get from either the, the corporate media or in, 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 in Venezuelan sources as well. Yeah, no, I mean, as I, we were talking about before, it's really nice to just actually not just see, not just counter all the bullshit that's thrown about Venezuela, but actually like learn about it because it's like when people are, you know, corporate media is making up these stories about Venezuela. They're not they don't even really care about what's going on there. So they're not going to actually yeah. report on what is actually going on. And I think sometimes, 
you know, the, the bullshit is just so endless that you can spend so much time countering it that it's like, well, wait a minute, why don't we actually write about what's going on in our country instead of countering every single lie that's thrown, you know, like it's almost like they just try to throw everything at a wall and just see what sticks with people, you know? See what sticks, yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a, a debate that we have in the alternative media community and also with solidarity activists that, I mean, we need to go beyond just countering the lies. And at the same time, I mean, as long as you understand the context and you and you put in place that there is an imperialist aggression, there are these uh, murderous sanctions going on, once that's established and you have an actual real genuine interest in building an alternative, then you can actually debate what the, the Venezuelan government is doing. I mean, you, you can agree or not agree. I mean, there are, there are some, some left, leftists, leftist groups, usually the trots, who the Trotskists who have actually a, a very good diagnostic there, perhaps some of the best when it comes to diagnosing the situation. But then they always end with this kind of manifesto that we demand the Maduro government do this and that. I mean, it's not, it's not really your place as a movement in the global north to demand that the government, the Venezuelan government do this or that. I mean, I mean this, this is something that Chomsky always explained quite clearly. Your main priority is to oppose the actions of your own government. But once that's established, there's nothing wrong with trying to be as informed as you are and trying to understand the, the real contradictions that emerge once you're trying to build a socialist project and you have this aggression. How do you, how do you work? What, what kind of steps back do you take? Are those necessary, necessary or not? What kind of popular organization survives and even becomes stronger in this context? What are they trying to do? I mean, all of this is, is I think, not just fascinating as a you know an academic from an academic perspective, but also something to really learn and analyze as as you try to 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 build these alternatives in your own setting as well. Yeah, like I said, I think people can can take notes. You know, it's like as the homelessness is is crazy, and I'm looking for an apartment in New York at the moment, and the market is I've never seen it uglier. And then you hear about initiatives that even with all the sanctions, Maduro is is building all these houses and. I just feel like, you know, for the global north and saying instead of like their first thought, which kind of to me buys into a little bit of the, you know, the general corporate press is like you're doing socialism wrong. Like, why don't you fucking take notes? <laughs> you know, it's like you're yeah. you're criticizing the Maduro government. Meanwhile, have you, have you there's more vacant homes than homeless people in the U.S. and there's a lot of homeless people. So it's like. Hmm. You know, maybe yeah, think that, about that shit, some, something. you know, exactly. or China's authoritarian. And it's like, OK, what about the U.S. prison population or this or that? You know, I mean, again, something like authoritarian, it's kind of like tanky when people use it unironically as like a, as a diss. It's like I can't take them seriously. It's like you, you've, you've yeah. like I thought, like how many times has authoritarian ended up in The New York Times, The Guardian, all these papers as describing again governments the West doesn't, doesn't like anymore. Yeah, it's a joke, you know. I, I was, I was, I saw a video today by by Lee Camp. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, Lee Camp. He was dope. talking about he, he he was talking about this new journalistic genre that's just asking at what cost. So oh, yeah, the, the China, is build, <laughs> China is building high speed rail, but at what cost? Yeah, China's and, curing you know, cancer. Yeah, Cuba's curing cancer, but what cost? But it, yeah, it's usually about China. I know the Olympic coverage but, too but, was but, unbelievable. But to circle, circle back, circle back to the housing. One of the things that I mean, of course, the, the Venezuelan Great Housing Mission is you know excellent, and has it, has, it, it is uh, one of the greatest achievements of the Bolivar Revolution. But it only begins in 2011. 
I mean, there was there were these huge floods which displaced a lot of people. And I mean, there were some initiatives before, but that's when Chavez realized that no, we need something really large scale to fight this. But before, there were already a lot of grassroots struggles. For example, here in Caracas, taking over unused land to to build housing and you know challenging the the housing market and the housing interests. The, you know all this uh, rampant speculation that you see everywhere else in the world, and it, it's not. There's usually a um, kind of an effort from the corporate press to kind of reduce everything that goes on in these quote-unquote official enemies to the whims of the leader. So it's not Russia that's threatened, it's Putin who wants to do this. So the same in Venezuela, it was Chavez who did this and did that. But it was actually, a, Chavez was an ally and was, you know, to a large extent driven by these popular grassroots efforts, which were in turn then, it was a kind of a positive cycle that fed it, fed each other. So in this case, you had these grassroots efforts to promote housing as a, as a fundamental right, which then fueled uh, government legislation to that regard, and, and then later the housing mission. So that's what I think is more interesting. I mean, after acknowledging what's been achieved, understanding how these processes work. Yeah, nice, man. Well, uh, Ricardo, so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, and thanks for everything that you do. I'll be uh, retweeting my, my, your stuff. Keep pleasure. pissing off the gusanos, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> all right, man. I'll catch you soon, all right? all right? Peace. Take care. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.